Welcome to Mind the Skills Gap, where we explore the barriers to skills transfer and how you can overcome them, flavoured with a sprinkle of neuroscience. In this episode, Bart Reentes talks about the human side of data and learning analytics. He explains how data can be a mirror in front of the learner that enables them to feel motivated. He gives tips to anyone getting started on learning analytics, start small, and he shares his ideas about where we're going to with all this data. I'm Stella Collins, an evangelist for the neuroscience of learning and co-founder and chief learning officer at Stella Labs. Watch out Skills Gap, we're coming for you. So Bart, it's absolutely fabulous to have you with me here today. And I'm really keen to find out and learn from you. Um, for everybody else, Bart Rintis is Professor of Learning Analytics at the Open University. Um, and you lead the learning analytics and learning design research programs, providing solutions university-wide at the Open University. Uh, you're an award-winning educational psychologist. And you focus, I gather, on social interaction, motivation and learning. And I know you're very, very widely published and cited, which is amazing. And I'm super excited because Bart's just told me the most interesting piece of news I've heard all week, which is you're about to go to Australia to participate in the World Transplant Games in cycling and triathlon. And he told me not to tell this, but I'm going to say it anyway. He's currently world champion. So welcome, Bart. Please just... Tell us a little bit about that first, because I think that's so interesting. Well, thank you, Stella, for having me. <laughs> and um, yeah, I'm really excited about going to Australia. It's uh, once every uh, four years, there are these games. And um, yeah, after COVID, it's great to see my fellow uh, transplantees together in, in Australia. And I'm really looking forward to, to some cycling and then hopefully a little bit good food and my first beer in two months. So uh, oh. yeah. <laughs> Well, I hope you enjoy the beer. <laughs> I definitely will. <laughs> that won't be as good as Belgian beer, of course. Yeah, I get, I, of course. <laughs> so um, what we're really interested to hear from you today, Bart, is, is you know, stuff about learning analytics, because that's, you know, a hugely important area for, for all of us who work in learning. And, and I think one that's a, a bit of a mystery for many of us. So can you just briefly outline you know, what is learning analytics and how can we use it to learn um, to improve both learning and business outcomes? Hmm. Um, so if I start with the classical definition, um, in 2011, uh, we identified learning analytics as the measurement, collection, analysis and reporting of data about learners and their context, for the purpose of understanding and optimizing learning and the environments in which they occur. And it's really important to stress that it's not just about capturing data of learners and analysis and reporting, but it's really about the human element of how can we use all that really interesting and smart data to help uh, learners and to help the environment in which they uh, learn. And over the uh, the last, let's say, 13 years since the definition uh, was defined, you can see a lot of examples across the globe of how teachers, professional developers, learning designers, and businesses have used the power of analytics in a wider sense to, to really help to optimize learning. And I think it's a really exciting and uh, blossoming field. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to talking more about this. Can you give us a, a really good example of something you've seen there? 
Yeah, so for example, at my own university, OP University, uh, we have a, an amazing predictive learning analytics system, which is able to identify which students are doing really well and what can we do to further help their um, learning journeys, but also in particular identify students who might need a little bit more help. So just for a little bit of context, we have around uh, 200,000 students following over 400 to 500 courses who are supported by 7,000 tutors across across the globe. And it's really difficult to get to know these learners, but our predictive learning analytic systems basically provide real-time data to our amazing, we call them associate lecturers, in order for them to identify, okay, who's doing well and who might need a little bit more support. And we have been able to show that just by using this system, we can improve retention rates between two to 10%. So it's a really good, um, yeah, good luck to basically see, okay, pr predictive learning analysis can really be powerful, both for teachers and for our learners. And I do remember you demonstrating that to me once and I was blown away by the, the power that you had and the, the, you know, the, but also the, the human element, as you've just said, you know, it wasn't just data for data's sake. It was because you were really, really trying to support people. Um, how can it be used? So you've talked a little bit about how it can be used to help people who are perhaps doing well, improve them, also support people who are perhaps struggling or falling behind. <clears throat> so that's kind of beginning to personalize that learning experience. How can you actually use it to, to personalize the learning experience? Yeah, so in order to personalize what you want or I want, we're very different. You yeah. need to get to know um, the individual learner. You need to get to know their motivation and and drive. And what we've seen over the last um, seven or eight years implementing it at the OP University, but also at other institutions, it is really good in identifying kind of strengths and weaknesses of learners. If you, you like, by putting a mirror in front of a learner, he or she or they can then see, okay, where am I really strong in which particular element and where can I potentially work on to, to improve my situation? And then it's up to the learner to decide what, what path they want to follow. So we provide lots of pathways, multiple pathways to roam, if you like, to, um, to then decide how you can f study this different, uh, programs because we're all unique. We all have different needs. So for example, some students just want to finish as quickly as possible. Others want to get the highest grades. Others just want to get a degree or others just want to develop this really cool new skill of learning to program in R. And each of these different types of learners will want different things, but oftentimes both in formal education, but also in professional development, we provide a kind of one size fits all solution. And with learning analytics and combined, of course, with artificial intelligence, you can start to tailor this to individual needs and individual learners. So for example, it could be providing writing analytics support. So for example, Grammarly is a good example. It provides really good um, automatic feedback or chat GPT, of course, is very well known, but there are also very good examples of providing learning path, like students like you or learners like you who follow this professional development program also really like this particular program. And, and in a way, by using data, it gives good personalized advice to learners to go on their next um, step. So these are just a couple of examples.
So that's a different levels as well, isn't it? Really, I suppose it's kind of one. They're on a program, but also giving them that advice about what to what to look for next. Yeah, and in particular, I mean, this is um, the unique thing, I guess, about Yale University is that because we have such a diverse group of, of students, we're also having. I mean, um, just this is a shameless plug, but we have around twenty percent of our students have a have a declared mental or physical uh, disability or accessibility need. So they might need to have it in different formats. And, you know, with learning analytics, you could start to think about, okay, what kind of approaches do we need? So there's a fantastic um, AI tool that we use as a chatbot that provides specific accessibility advice depending on your accessibility needs. And it's really difficult to do that one-on-one, if you like, by a human. But of yeah. course, chatbots can do this at scale um, and then adopt it to, to local individual needs. And I really like the fact that you said that, you know, this data can be a mirror for the students. So it's not just data for, you know, the people who are supporting the learning, it's for the students themselves. They can see where they're progressing or where they're not progressing particularly. So, Yeah, and it's a, and it's a choice. I just have to be honest, at the OP University, currently we provide this mirror directly to teachers and not to students. Okay. And the reason for this is because I've mentioned previously, lots of students have accessibility needs. And we've made the decision many years ago that it may not be safe for, for example, a person who is bipolar to see this result. But in other institutions that I work with, we do provide this. We provide even the most fine-grained data to learners. And some learners really love this. And others are like, oh, do we want to know this? So I think it's also about really understanding your audience when you're when you're thinking about providing data to your learners. That's really interesting. Please excuse this interruption. At Stella Labs, we help you build business critical skills, not just knowledge. Add the missing pieces to your learning journeys to take people from knowing to doing. Want to know how? Visit stellalabs.eu to learn more. Now, back to the episode. Um, now, I know a lot of the time learning or data and analytics gets used to sort of help support the decision-making process. So how, what do we know about, you know, collecting, analyzing and using learning data to support decision-making? Yeah, so to me, this is always the first thing that um, I focus on when we're working with other organizations. Um, it's it's really trying to identify and nail down what is the key educational problem or opportunity you're interested in. Um, and this will define basically the focus of your learning analytics approach. So for example, um, in one medical school we've been working with, they don't have any dropout. Uh, <laughs> because they're like, you know, they're doing really well. These are top students. And their concern was, how can we help students who are like on the 70 to 80 range in terms of grades? How can we get them to learn from st students who are on the 80 to 100 range? Um, and that's an interesting way of flipping the, the problem. They want to get even more top students by learning from other top students. Uh, in other examples uh, that we have been using, it's about... Um, how can uh, we share what successful professionals do to solve a particular problem in a business application? And then other students, or in this case, professionals, they can learn from what other business professionals are doing. So it's not always necessarily about 
you know, the, the lowest denominator or the struggling students. It could be what is the big educational challenge that you want to use learning analytics for, and that will basically determine um, what you are thinking about in terms of collecting, analyzing, and uh, processing data. That's really interesting because I think a lot of people sort of have concerns around data, don't they, and the, sort of the ethics around data yeah. and that it's all about, you know, pointing out that people are doing poorly, um, which yeah. I think is, is just a myth. Um, so that's really interesting that you talk about the fact that, you know, actually this is about supporting people to get even better, kind of whatever level they're at. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, so what are some of, well, there, there, there's a the potential ethical drawback there that, you know, some people are a bit nervous about it. They don't like the context. What are some of the other perhaps drawbacks around using learning analytics, perhaps more, well, in educational and organizational settings? Um, yeah, there is a fantastic uh, meta review that we perhaps can include later on in the podcast by Hernandez de Mendes, who basically reviewed how, how 18 large-scale organizations have adopted learning analytics on a large scale, and they've done a fantastic visualization of the, the benefits and also the, the drawbacks of, of elements. And um, as you mentioned, ethics is, of course, a big concern, and you really have to think very carefully as an organization how you're dealing with that. And I've seen um, also a lot of change amongst, in particular, our learners. So originally there was a lot of concern about um, the use of analytics, but at the same time now our learners are expecting, yeah, of course, if we're, if we're doing all these things online, I'm expecting to, prefer, to receive personalized feedback. Uh, one student, for example, commented, yeah, I was away for four weeks and no one talked to me was not even worried about me. I was like, whoa, um, that's interesting. Um, so it, it's also a kind of expectation management of people that they know that they're being monitored and then they're also expecting something. But I think that a, another big uh, challenge which you often see is the kind of uh, scope and quality of the data. Um, oftentimes we focus on things that we can measure in systems. So we, we, we focus primarily on the the technology and the affordances that systems give, like, okay, how many times did the student click on a web page or how often did the student um, revisit a particular part of a web page? But is that the most interesting question? Should we ask other questions like, hey, how is a student feeling? Or is a student confident that um, they are progressing well? Or why have they clicked many times on a particular website? So oftentimes um, it's, you find that with large learning analytics applications, there's a lot of data, but how do you make sense of the right data? And I guess this comes back to the previous conversation we had, is it's really about thinking about what do you actually want to solve? And based on that challenge or problem, you can then work on your next steps. Another thing that oftentimes um, comes up is um, a lot of people who are interested in data basically find a relation between two variables. So for example, previous assessment scores predict how the students are doing on their next assignment. And it's like, oh yeah, fantastic. You find a very strong correlation between the two, but okay, what does this tell us? Yeah, correlation, uh, not causation. Yes, exactly. And what I often uh, say is, okay, so what's the theoretical or educational relevance for finding a relation between uh, particular variables and what can you do about this? And um, it's often difficult because data gives you a sense of certainty, 
but I always get more excited when you're expecting a particular relation between two or more variables and there's not a relation. Then it's like, oh, but why is that? Um, and I guess maybe a, la a last thing, because I'm mindful that Hernandez Mendes mentioned seven things, but I think um, oftentimes the biggest hurdle is probably um, the lack of implementation in practice. So there are lots of really good examples also in 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 the literature in in my own conference at the learning and Analytics knowledge conference another shameless plug <laughs> um, is that we find amazing research applications of relatively small sample studies with like say 200 students or 50 students and it seems to work really great but what if you then upscale this to a large organization or what if you upscale this to an organization working in 20 different countries does it then still work and I think there's a there's a still a huge gap between really good evidence and research context and what is happening in practice. And I guess this is, I think, a big challenge in the next couple of years. That's really interesting. That yeah, I mean, I guess that's the it was it called the Hawthorne effect? I think mm. isn't it in psychology that just because people were studied, they suddenly behaved mm. differently to mm. how they would normally behave. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, so what do you think are, you know, perhaps some of the mistakes people make when they're perhaps new to this? You know, what advice could we give to people who are perhaps a bit new to learning analytics and they're thinking, well, I really want to start on this and, you know, I've got some ideas, but I don't quite know where to go. What what, what mistakes might they make and what advice could you give them? Yeah, so often I give two, two pieces of advice. One is, as I mentioned before, the focus is often on what can we measure? Um, rather than what is valuable and important to measure. So even if it's difficult to articulate that, it's much more important to think about, okay, what is the real problem you want to address rather than, oh, I can download lots of data and then let's just see if, if something sticks. Because in the end, this is not going to help you to solve your um, educational problem. And another that, thing... It's that kind of big why, isn't it? As to yeah. Why are we doing this? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, for example, at at um, at my own institution, because we have such a diverse group of of learners, um, we obviously have also a lot of retention issues. So, our core focus is trying to identify how can we um, address the retention problem. And obviously, when you address one problem, it may lead to another problem. So, we focus, for example, a lot of our efforts on year one, and we've improved this with fifteen to twenty percent. And now we're seeing that students in year two are still struggling um, to, to make the successful transition. So it's like you, you really have to think in a, in a broader, long-term perspective, but it's good to be able to identify, you know, oh, we're, we're doing two or three interventions here and after two or three interventions, one of them works, but you have to also see it in the larger picture. And the other thing is, I guess, uh, linking to the previous discussion is oftentimes practitioners or people in, in management find that it's really daunting and super complex. There's so much data in any kind of organization. So where do you start? And oftentimes I say it's, it's best to just start very small and literally just start with two or three people that are interested to collect a little bit of data and play with that data because you can learn so much from just starting small rather than immediately think, okay, let's throw 10 million at it and then go big in the first year because you will obviously, um, well, uh, will lead to a lot of resistance. While most of our work start, of course, with senior support, 
but we start by experimenting on the ground floor and the workflow, if you like, with a couple of of uh, key people and then testing and experimenting. And then once um, we've been able to establish a good product, we then, then start to launch it wider within the organization. So you kind of collect those early early adopters, work with them, experiment, get them, presumably get them to share and sort of spread the word that, oh, this is really working, this is really useful. Yeah, early adopters, but also at the same time, um, Skeptics. Yes. yes. Um, not to mention names, but I had one a mathematics teacher who was extremely skeptical in the beginning in 2014, and um, they became our biggest proponent afterwards uh, because we've worked with them and we could basically develop the dashboards in the way that they liked it in conjunction with the other early adopters. So it, it's it's easy, of course, to fall into the trap to just talk to the so-called eager beavers or early adopters, but you want to have probably a mix of people initially, because I think people like to see that it has worked with people like them. So if they can see other mathematicians or arts people or people in their discipline that have worked with that, and they're like, oh, if it works for them, why can't I use it? Yeah. And I think when you get those critics and skeptics, they actually help to expand the conversation yeah. much wider because yeah. they're asking much more challenging questions. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they're kind of digging deeper than, you know, somebody thinks, oh, it's all great. And they're just looking at the positives. Whereas mm. somebody who's a skeptic, if you can turn them around, they're, they're usually, as you say, your your absolute biggest advocates. Mm. Okay. That's really useful. Um so how do you see the world of learning analytics evolving? I mean, I guess with, you know, the start of this chat GPT and all this mm. data that's, you know, just everywhere, data lakes everywhere. You know, how do you see it evolving in the next perhaps five to 10 years? Yeah, I think we're... Or is that too long as timeline? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think there's a really um, kind of a tipping point. And um, I was... Um, I was, I mean, of course, we were all talking about different revolutions and we're at a fourth of the fifth revolution now. And... It's difficult to know when you're at this tipping point as you're in the moment, but you can really see that um, um, there are some really good applications now of AI in education that that would radically, uh, potentially radically transform what how we're, how we're how we're learning and how we're supporting our learners across the globe. But I mean, it's inevitable that there will be increased automation, um, and in, I mean if. I sometimes find it really still interesting when I'm looking at introduction models that, for example, if you look at the introduction model of marketing, they ask, what are the four P's of marketing? And then they assess this and you're like, okay, do I really want, I mean, I can just Google this. Why would, <laughs> why would we want to know about the four P's of marketing? And um, I think it's much more interesting to ask really complex problems like, hey, um, how could you use the principles of four P's? in this particular context in a small company working in West Flanders on developing the latest um, gear ratio for bikes, for example. <laughs> um, and the great thing, of course, with automation is that if we design interesting, authentic assessments, we can also use automatic AI to identify, is it really creative or not? So I think in the next five years with the increased automation of knowledge, there's going to be a shift away, I think, from knowledge and understanding of our learners to kind of application, creation, critical analysis, evaluation, which are very different. And this requires a very different way of designing for learning, but also assessing for learning. And that's 
going to be a really interesting challenge. And um, I'm not entirely sure if we as educators are ready for that world because it's actually quite no nice to know that the four P's of marketing was that again, product, place, price, and oh, I forgot the fourth P. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I can't help you there. Yeah. <laughs> I'd have to Google it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, yeah, I, and that's, I think, what's, what's really interesting is that, um, you know, there's so much knowledge out there. It's really about how can we help learners to become, uh, well, creative and agile. And that is, I think, um, yeah, a huge challenge for us. And I think it's about helping them become critical about what, which of the knowledge is valuable and which isn't. Yeah. Because now it's so easy on ChatGPT to say, yeah. you know, share X with me. Yeah. But I, I really, um, one of my um, ideas is to experiment with it in the next few weeks and mm. see if I can kind of confuse it or upset it or get it to yeah. give me stuff that's not true. Yeah. Because, you know, it looks so convincing. You kind of mm. believe what it says. It's written, it's written, mm. it, a computer appeared. Um, mm. Yeah, it, it's it's just very real. And you can imagine if you don't actually have a deeper understanding, it's very easy to think, well, this must be the right information. And we've had that experience with, you know, Google and things, but we've mm. probably got used to doing it on Google, but with ChatGPT and, and all the other yeah. AI that's available to us, that's much harder. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's fascinating. And it, and it raises fundamental questions about what's the unique thing about creativity and, and thinking and, um, yeah, how do we encourage the next generation and the current generation? Because I think we haven't really talked about, um, lifelong learning, I think. If you've been working the same, let's say, company for 20 years, I mean, you probably haven't even heard about analytics or chat GPT and you're like, oh, what's going on? But I mean, the world is rapidly changing around us and we have a great opportunity to help to upskill, um, you know, the current generation as well. Indeed. Indeed. So there's going to be a huge amount of change going on. Very disruptive, I think, particularly in education and, and training um, and I think it's for a good thing. I think it's really time that that did happen. Um, one of the questions we always like to ask our guests, Bart, is what advice would you give to anyone who's wanting to beat the skills gap? Um, yeah, I saw a very inspirational story of uh, of a woman who was 91 years old. And the, the main narrative for me is like, you're never too young or never too old to learn. So she basically never went to to any school um, and then when she retired at 65, she decided, hey, let's study and finally get a degree. And she recently won, um, she finished her uh, first, first class degree in humanities, but she also won uh, the best poetry uh, award. Wow. Um, and it's like, you know, when she was 90. So it's like, you know, I think there's so, so much great potential in the human brain. The human brain, like coming back to the previous topic about the transplant games, it's, it's, it's such a complex, but it's like a trainable muscle, if you like. So the more you use your brain, the more you can come up with really fantastic ideas. And I think we're never too young or never too old to learn. So I hope that um, even if there are more tools available like ChatGPT, we, we use it in such a way that it further uses our brain to think really creatively in solving, uh, you know, the complex problems that we have in society. That's a really good piece of advice. Thank you so much, Bart. Um, I've really enjoyed talking to you. I've learned a lot, and I think our um, listeners will also have learned a lot. All I can do is wish you the very, very best in your races in Australia. That's just going to be amazing. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. Have a wonderful time in Australia, and we look forward to hearing how you did.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Mind the Skills Gap. If you liked it, hit subscribe. You can follow me, Stella Collins, on LinkedIn and find out more about how Stella Labs is tackling the skills gap at stellalabs.eu.